Welcome to the Vintage Church Podcast. My name is Matt, and I'm the lead pastor at Vintage Church. We're so grateful that you would take time to lean into a teaching from one of our weekend worship gatherings. Each week, one of our pastors opens the Word of God with a relevant message in the hopes that you are inspired to live and love like Jesus. We invite you now to open your heart and mind and lean into the Word of God. It is a good day to be in God's house, and if today you are visiting with us because of Mother's Day, or maybe you've never been to Vintage at Mother's Day, kind of a newsflash for you, we, we very rarely kind of just let the calendar dictate what we were going to preach, so if you came to hear a good old Proverbs 31 message, you're in the wrong place, <laughs> but I'm glad you're here, because right now we are in a series through the book of Romans, and I didn't feel like the Lord said I could jump out and jump back in. Um, mainly because I'm ready to be done. Because this, this book has been challenging, it has stretched me, and I know it hasn't always been fun to preach, so I know it hasn't always been fun to hear, and today's gonna be one of those days, so grab your Bible and go to Romans 13. <laughs> That's nervous laughter. Romans 13, so go ahead and turn in your Bibles there, but before, before we jump in, I just wanna remind you, like last week we stepped into Romans chapter 12. And Romans chapter 12 is, is a pretty significant transition for Paul as he's pinning this letter to the believers in Rome. Paul spent the first 11 chapters methodically and in detail unpacking the gospel, trying to make sure that when people read it, there was, there was no confusion about the fact that we need to be saved, why we're saved, how we're saved, like all the things that center around our salvation, that it has never been by our merit, but it is because of God's mercy that we are made right with him. Y'all with me say amen. amen. And now as we move into Romans 12, Paul's saying, now that you know this, now that you have a real clear understanding of the gospel this is the natural res response. This is the result that should flow from this. That everything that you're going to be asked to do, look at me, they're not things that make you saved. They're a result of you being saved. Because everything, being saved isn't about what you do. It's about what Jesus did and what you believe about what he did. And so in Romans 12, he, he kind of transitions us into this next part of Romans with, with the very, it's, it may seem subtle to you, but sometimes God is subtle, but he's always intentional. Come on, somebody. And it's the subtle, intentional things that sometimes we, me, because we ain't too smart sometimes, we miss it. I didn't say you weren't smart. I said I wasn't too smart sometimes, but some of us fit in that category, and it's okay. It's Mother's Day. Amen. I love you. <laughs> Romans chapter 12. When he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Like that's, to me, that's the statement. That, that's, that's the line. That now with God's mercy in view, with, with you constantly thinking about living from in view of God's mercy, that we walk in obedience to God as a response to the mercy of God. Somebody needs to write that down. Like, we, we don't live in reaction to culture. We live in response to God. And before the day's over, you're going to know, don't hear what I'm not saying. It doesn't, this doesn't mean we don't speak into culture, that we don't leverage our influence to make a difference in culture. But we don't let outside things dictate the way that we live. We let Jesus be the determining factor in how and why we approach life. And we let nothing move us from it. Not comfort. I'm already fired up and I'm just happy. We, 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 we live in response 
to God, not in reaction to other people. That's why a Christian can get a bad, can get a bad a medical report and still have hope because we don't live in reaction to our circumstance. We live in response to God. That's why a, a follower of Jesus can be nice to somebody even when they're not nice to them because we're not living in response to their behavior. We're living in, in response to what Jesus has done in us. That's what makes us so different, not better, different because of who Jesus is. And then he goes on in, in chapter 12 to unpack a lot of things that now this means. That now that you're living in response to the mercy of God and you're constantly keeping your eyes fixed on him, that you offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, and you do all these things. And I want to remind you of what he says in verse 16, because you're going to need it in a minute, okay? He says in verse 16, live in harmony with one another. And don't be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. In other words, don't think you're the smartest person in the room all the time. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. In verse 18, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. See, I, I, I need you to listen to what I'm about to read with that backdrop in mind. Y'all with me? Chapter 13, verse 1. You ready? No, you're not. So with all that in mind, in view of God's mercy and all these things, he says then in verse 1 of chapter 13, let everyone submit to the governing authorities. Since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God, so then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the one in authority? Then do what is good, and you will have its approval. Verse 4. For it is God's servant for good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger, that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit. Not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes. Since the authorities are God's servants, continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those you owe taxes, and tolls to those you owe tolls. Respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. Now you read verses like that, and you say, submit to the government and pay taxes. That'll get a man ran out of town in Randolph County. And I understand the tension that you feel as I'm reading it, because I too feel that tension. But we have to lean in to what these verses are saying and try to figure out what they mean for us and what we do with them now. Why? Because they're in the Bible. And I don't get to just jump over these verses because it's going to be uncomfortable for us to talk about. You might get mad at me today, but at least you won't be able to say that you've got a preacher that's scared to preach all the Bible. But I read these verses and I think some of the things you're thinking. I feel the same tension that you feel. And I, and I want to react in the same way that you react. Paul, 
If you, if you see what we're dealing with and if you knew what was happening in our government or in our country, you wouldn't write that. And can I just submit to you, when Paul writes this, what's happening in the government of his own time is far worse than you and I have ever experienced and I hope ever will experience. Because when Paul's penning this letter, he's not saying submit to an authority that he approves of or that he voted for because he couldn't vote. Can I remind you that throughout the majority of our New Testament, Rome is still in power in most of the world. And Rome had a trifecta of crazy at the top. Guys like Caligula, who was a Roman emperor, who had relations with his sisters and put his favorite horse in the Senate. And I don't know how that happened. They put him in there. They went to vote all in favor and nobody said nay. You get dad jokes on Mother's Day. You're welcome. I won't say I made that up because I don't want credit for it. I heard that somewhere. What was I saying? So you had Caligula, who was, in all intents and purposes, crazy. And then following him, you had a guy named Claudius. And following Claudius was a guy that maybe you've heard of because he's more effective. Nero, who was a vicious, violent man who cut the heads off of Christians and impaled them on stakes to light his garden. Like, that's the kind of crazy in which you're dealing with. So when, when we're thinking about the context in which we're reading it, we have to be careful not to jump and say, well, Paul, if you knew, man, if you knew what was happening. And then the question begs, okay, well, what, do these, what do these verses mean? Because if we, if we take them absolutely literal, then we're all put in a position that none of us are comfortable with or even feel is appropriate or accurate. And so we have to lean into what we know and we have to try to figure out how to live within this context that there's no question that our God is sovereign. And there's, come on, look at, there's never been a person in any type of human position that was not there because he didn't allow it. And I know this forces us back into that whole tension of, of that we looked at a few weeks ago when we were walking through 9, 10, and 11 of God's sovereignty and human responsibility and how all those things function and coexist. And, and it's, it's, it's a difficult tension that we live in and what God authors and what God is, allows. But this is what I know. God is sovereign. And again, he, God has never said, I didn't see that coming. That's something he's never said. There's never been a single person in power throughout all of history that he didn't allow. But don't mistake what he allows for what he approves. Don't misunderstand what he allows for what he approves. And I know that's a difficult tension for our human brains. Like, God, why would you allow this? When, why would you allow somebody like that to come to power and do those evil things? And why would you allow that person to be in this office and, and leverage that? And I, I know. I know. But every human authority that's ever had power is there because, you know, even, even, even in the Old Testament, you remember old King Nebuchadnezzar? Like, again, you think, you think some of the regimes that we've had in, in our lifetimes have been evil? Just, just read through the Bible and see, see the type of, of characters that had no character that were in positions of great authority and power from Pharaoh on through. 
Even to, the, to somebody like Saul who became king of Israel. And understand too that, that government was instituted by God, but ultimately God wanted us to live under a theocracy where we, our allegiance was to him and he, him alone. But the people of God said, no, we want to be like everybody else and get a king. And he said, this is going to be bad. This is not going to go well for you. But again, like we've talked about, sometimes God gives us over to those things in our lives. And he can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, because he is God. And even somebody like Nebuchadnezzar, look at Jeremiah 27, 6. It says, so now I have placed all these lands under the authority of my servant, Nebuchadnezzar. That God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. And dude was crazy. Did evil things. Was anything but godly. So what do we do with these verses? And this is not the only place where we see this sentiment of submitting to earthly authorities. And it's not talking just about like governments, it's talking about several different paradigms, systems that God has allowed to be in place in the human broken world in which we live. Peter, go read 1 Peter chapter two, where he echoes this same sentiment of, of submitting under the authority of human systems. And, and ultimately, when when earthly authority is in alignment with godly authority, it can be a force for great good in our world. And it can execute things like Paul's talking about where it protects people and punishes evil. But when earthly authority fails to submit to ultimate authority, it can go sideways fast and become dangerous and downright diabolical. And the question is, okay, when that happens, what do we do? Because Paul says to submit. And there's some people that have leveraged these verses. Some people have risen to power and leveled these verses over Christian communities to get them to fall in line and be a part of some really evil things throughout history. But I, I can't read this that literally. I can't read these verses and come away saying that, that we as followers of Jesus must always fall in line with earthly authority no matter what they do, how they do it, when we do it, we just submit. I cannot do that. Why? Because the full of scripture will not allow me. Come on. Don't get quiet on me now. Because again, what we have the responsibility to do is look at each verse through the lens of all the verses, not all the verses through the lens of a few handpicked verses. Like we have to look at the totality of Scripture. And when I look at the totality of Scripture, it will not allow me to come to that literal a conclusion of the verses I've just read because there's too many examples of people out of allegiance to the ultimate authority had to stand in defiance of earthly authority. Even Paul himself. For Paul to take this literally would be very hypocritical. Because the man who wrote these words, remember, spent a majority of the latter part of his life in prison and eventually died for his unwillingness to submit to earthly authority and stop making Jesus known. Y'all still with me? It's going to get more fun, so come on. It's actually not. It's going to get worse, though. I'll turn my back if you need to leave. 
So what do we do? Because when, when we read these verses, we, we do understand that, the, that, that, yes, that God instituted government and it does have a specific role to our place to play in our lives. And there are things that it can do to execute really good things in our world. But there are, can, can be times when it goes sideways. And when it does, what do we do? And we, our scripture is littered with stories of people who, in defiance of earthly authority, had to exercise allegiance to the ultimate authority. And I think that that's where we have to draw the line. When submission to earthly authority begins to step into the arena of compromise to the ultimate authority, we always choose the ultimate authority. This is not the only paradigm where we know this to be true. Scripture says, honor your father and mother, obey your parents. But if I looked at my daughter who's sitting right over here and said, tomorrow, you're going to smoke crack and rob a bank. <laughs> I think she doesn't have to obey me as her parent when I ask. And I know that's a weird example, but it's the one that's popped in my mind all week and I had to use it. <laughs> but we would all agree that her ultimate allegiance to Jesus cannot be compromised in her, her desire to obey me. Because she has a responsibility to God above her responsibility to me. In the marriage paradigm, wives submit to your husbands. Well, when we see when our husbands aren't loving you as the way that Christ loves the church, there comes a limit. And for it to be this hard line of you do what the government says no matter what, then Mary and Joseph would have been defiant. Because when they were told that they had to do certain things and Jesus would be killed, they decided to defy their authorities and flee to Egypt. The very conflict between Moses and Pharaoh, the moment that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we will not obey you. If we die in the fiery furnace, we die. But if not, whatever, we are not going to follow you. We're going to follow God. When Daniel was told that there's been a decree and that he cannot pray to his God, he can only pray to King Darius, who's just a human, he said, I ain't doing that. That one I want you to read. Go to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. Pick up with verse 10. It says, when Daniel learned that that document that was telling people they couldn't pray had been signed, he went into his house. And I love what Daniel did. The windows in his upstairs room were open toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed and gave thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel petitioning and imploring his God. So they approached the king and asked about the edict. Didn't you sign an edict that for 30 days any person who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den? And Daniel said, toss me. Because my first allegiance is not earthly authority, but the ultimate authority that is God. Had the men and women of the early church taken this hard stance of Drawing a line saying there is never a moment when we don't have responsibility to stand in defiance to earthly authority in our allegiance to the ultimate authority, we wouldn't be sitting here. Because in the early church, Peter and John were brought in multiple times. One time they were brought in, they said, listen, it's not that we don't like what you're doing, we just don't like the name in which you're doing it. They didn't say, hey, stop healing people, stop feeding the hungry, stop meeting people's needs, stop caring for the orphans and the widows. They said, hey, just, just stop doing it in Jesus' name. And sometimes the earthly authority will try to be really subtle in what it wants us to do, and we still can't compromise. 
It says, they said, you know, just stop using the name of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 27, it says, After they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest asked, Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. In verse 29, Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than people. Like there are multiple times in the scripture that we see this happen. So when we look at Romans 13, yeah, we see Paul helping us understand that there is a role and a place for human authority, for, for earthly authority, for government, that is a role it's supposed to play, and there's a way that we're supposed to operate under it in a way that is God-honoring and understands that there are moments when that earthly authority invokes things that are good for our safety, for our protection, and for the necessity of a civilized society. But the moment it crosses that threshold as a follower of Jesus, when you're being asked to compromise convictions, that's where you draw the line in the sand and understand that your ultimate authority is God. Your allegiance is to him, not government, and you stand in the right place at the right time and in the right way. And I'm grateful that we live in a different paradigm than Paul did and I deeply believe that we should be involved and use our voice and exercise the opportunity that we have to help shape the society in which we live. And, and I deeply believe, look at me, I'm, I mean this with everything in me, that our biblical principles should shape our political perspectives. Why? Because I believe our biblical principles should shape everything. That we don't get to just turn this stuff off. That we don't get to compartmentalize. And I know, I will. I know there comes, well, man, with the separation of church and state, we so misunderstand what that means. That the government has no right to influence the church, but I think the church should definitely influence the government. That we use our voice that we stand on our convictions, that we live in a space that allows us that opportunity. But I'm scared and worried about the place in which we find ourselves because sometimes I see believers believing all that and exercising it in all the wrong ways. That we choose being right over being effective and I'd rather be effective every single time. That we don't have the responsibility just to be right. We have the obligation to do it right. And in a way that represents Jesus well. That honors him and shows that our allegiance is to him above anything else, including a political party. And sometimes in this tension, it gets hard. Friction and emotion, and it's impacting relationships. But I want to remind you that we are all accountable to God. All of us. The people that are in authority and those of us who are responding to it. And the people in authority will be held accountable for the way they used it, and we too will be held accountable for the way we responded to it. 
And that at times, we need to make sure that we're doing what we can do, but leaving room to let God do what only he can do. That's why it says in Romans 12, 19, friends, do not avenge for yourself. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But before he finishes this chapter, he moves us back into the one command that none of us can ever escape. The, the reminder that we all need as we operate in the culture in which we live and try to speak into the things of our day. He reminds us that, yes, we have, look at me, we have a responsibility to hold to our convictions, but we also have an obligation to do it with compassion. That right never gives us permission to be rude. And the way that we exercise that freedom and use our voice must always reflect the one thing that a follower of Jesus can never escape, the responsibility to love other people. That's why he says it. Look at it. Verse, thir- uh, verse 8, chapter 13. Do not, owe any th- do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor, your neighbor, all your neighbors as yourself. Because love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. He says, don't owe anyone anything. And, and some people have misunderstood. It's not saying that sometimes we, don't, we, don't have to have, we can't have debt. He's saying, you pay your debt. Make sure you don't leave anything unpaid. That means like there's going to be times you, you have to take out a mortgage or do the things that are necessary. And, and, and this ain't about that. You understand what I'm saying? But he's saying, you can pay off your mortgage. You can pay off your car. You can pay off debt. The one thing you can never pay off is the responsibility to love. Like you're never not under that obligation. Even when you're staring at somebody that doesn't share your beliefs or your convictions or your political views, like you're never off the hook to respond with, operate in love. And that as we navigate these waters that are boiling over, in the culture in which we live. That yes, as followers of Jesus and as champions of truth, we have the responsibility to fight for what God's word says is right and good and true. But we have a responsibility to fight for it in a way that honors God and reflects Jesus well. And can we all admit, we ain't seen a whole lot of that over the last few years. And I'm not saying, the other thing that we're going to have that we, we're gonna have to make sure we understand is, is what it means to operate in love. Because sometimes love ain't like we think, oh, love. Sometimes love is tense. And sometimes it's hard. And sometimes it's challenging. And this is another thing you've got to realize. When you operate in love, sometimes people are going to hate you. See, we're under this assumption that if, the, the, only, the way we know we're operating in love is we get love back. But that ain't biblical. Jesus said multiple times, they're going to hate you. When you stand up for truth, they're not going to like it. Even when you operate in love, even when you operate in truth and love, there will be moments when, like, people just don't get that or understand that. Look at 1 John. Because he knew this. He took it from his time with Jesus. 
He says, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another, unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that, but let me stop there. The world might hate us, but that can't be our intent. Some of us are acting in a way that makes them want to hate us. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters, and the one who does not love remains in death. And everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has the world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need and withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. That Paul says, submit to these earthly authorities. Peter says, submit to these earthly authorities. And when we can and when we should, we do, we operate with honor. In those moments when walking in compliance pushes us towards compromise, we have to draw hard lines and dig in our heels and choose truth. But church, the way that we do it matters. The conversations that we have matter. The tone that we have matters. Like these things are important to God and they should be important to us. And at the end of the day, we have to remember our main objective in this life because it is one far greater than this earth. There is an eternity that is beyond this earthly thing that we should be. See, we have this citizenship in heaven that we are constantly having in our minds. And people's soul is what matters. And when we see everybody as a soul in need of a savior instead of a person affiliated with a party, it'll change things. It'll change things. And, and when the writers of the New Testament are writing all these things, they're living with this sense of urgency because all of them thought that Jesus would come back before they were gone. And so they live with this sense of urgency to say, you know what, and, and there's, there's been some thought over why Paul wrote this and even did he write it because he thought the Roman government would read it and he's trying to avoid falling in the wrong landmines and traps and all this other kind of stuff. Or, or maybe he's like, look, right now, our most important mission is to make Jesus known in the world with everything that we have, to use our voice first and foremost to proclaim the gospel of Christ. So live with a sense of urgency. That's why he says in verse 11, besides this, since you now know the time, like you understand the time in which you live, that it is already the hour for you to wake up from your sleep because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. He says the night is nearly over and the day is near, so let us, let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness and sexual immorality and promiscuity, not quarreling and jealousy. Like, stop! 
but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I love that he moves there. He says, hey, remember the time is now, it's, it's near, and so like, act like you've got some sense. Live like you know Jesus. Because if you climb up on your political high horse and sit on a saddle of poor character, it will not go well. I just made that up. I want to say that again. If you climb up on your political high horse while sitting on a saddle of poor character, it will not go well. So he says, yeah, you're living under all these things. But remember, like you're, you have a responsibility to that earthly authority. But your first allegiance is to the ultimate authority. So honor God. And I think about that encounter in Mark, where Jesus has this interaction with these different political people. Mark chapter 12. See, Jesus lived in a time of tremendous political tension. You had all kinds of factions. You didn't have like Democrats and Republicans. You had Herodians and you had Zealots and you had Pharisees and you had all these different groups that were constantly kind of going at it about what they should do about Rome and how they should respond and what the nation of Israel should do and all this kind of stuff. And there's a moment that we see Jesus have with a, in a collision with these groups. And there's something that is in this passage that we have to latch on to and I want to leave you with. Go to Mark chapter 12, verse 12. Actually, verse 13. It says, Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. Then I want you to look what they say about Jesus. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but you teach the way of God truthfully. That's who I want to be, like Jesus. But then he says, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Sound like a coffee shop last week in Randleman. <laughs> like this is what's happening. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought him a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? Caesar's, they replied. Then he told them, well, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. And like, you can miss it if you don't see it. He says, hey, go get me a coin. And they bring him a coin. And on it is Caesar's face. And he says, who is that on that? They say, Caesar. He said, yeah, that coin was made for his image and in his image. So you give it to God. Or you give it to Caesar, but you give to God what is God's. That coin is made in his image and for his image to Caesar. But you, you are made in his image and for his image, the heavenly father. So give to God what belongs to God. And that's all of who you are. You take that silly coin and give it wherever you want to give it. But you give your heart to me, to me. Your life belongs to me because my imprint is on your spirit. It is on your heart that will last for all eternity. So you toss that coin wherever you want, but you give me you. I want your heart. And if that coin is somehow taking place of your heart like it can tend to do, that makes a difference. But I'm looking at, I want you. I want all of you. I want your whole heart, your whole being, every bit of who you are. And that's not something that you ever lay aside. That's something that's constantly in your mind. 
in every situation and in every circumstance, especially when you're navigating the hard times of our culture, have to speak truth into it and navigate a political landscape that's challenging for us all. And how you're handling it, to me, is a reflection of where your heart belongs. Who's your heart belong to? Church, my hope has never been in government. My hope has always been in God. I don't know who will be president 20 years from now, but I know who's going to be king. And don't, I'm not saying those things aren't significant and they don't matter to us, but they're not the things that motivate us, church. We serve Jesus. We serve Jesus. Let's serve him well everything that we do. Would you stand with me? Father, God, I'm not going to lie. I don't like preaching this stuff. And God, I can get in my head the body language, the facial expressions. But Lord, I pray that you've been honored with everything that I've said today. Because you're the only one that matters. Because God, my allegiance is not to this congregation first. It's to you. And God, I pray that what you've put on my heart to say today has been honoring to you, to your name, to your word, to your truth. And God, I pray that you would just move in our hearts, God. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Who's your heart belong to? Who has your heart? Thanks for listening to the Venice Church Podcast. We hope what you have just heard has inspired you to live and love like Jesus. If you'd like to know more about Venice Church or to get further connected, we invite you to visit us at our website at venicechurch.net. We'd also encourage you to download the Vintage app. There you can find more resources about how to get involved and grow in your faith. You can access the Venice Church app by going to app.venicechurch.net. Thank you so much for allowing us to be a part of your spiritual journey, and we hope to see you soon.